I think I could be could have been a bit excited about this week's interview too, because of the. Uh, I've been tinkering with fixing old, old bits of bits of tech gear that I've got around the around the, the shed here. Have we spoken about this before? I feel like I've spoken about uh, it. Not before. in detail, like no. I mean, well, like I have a um. So in a previous life, I was I was really into experimental music, drone, avant-garde kind of stuff, and I was in. I I hasten to call it a band it was a collective of people who would make noise in kind of squat parties and stuff mm. but during that time um like i've still got stuff left over so i've had, like, got a michael korg um synthesizer i've got like a loop pedal like a line six loop pedal um i've got just little bits and pieces knocking around they've all been really badly trashed and i just i've never kind of a probably never had the time or always it just a fear that if i like i know it's broken but if I open it up and I try and fix it, I'm going to break it to the point where someone who knows what they're doing won't be able to fix it. And over the last three weeks, I've fixed, well, I fixed my a Denon amp that I've had that's that's been dodgy for ages. I've fixed my Michael Korg, and of last as of last week, I fixed the Line Six. So I've actually, <laughs> I've actually been uh, been playing really weird. Actually, in part, in part inspired by the chat we have with Quivin, just. Right. Well, what if I if I want to play music on my own that is transcendental and goes on for as long as I can possibly do it? How do I do it mm-hmm. if I'm not a great musician, which I'm not? So something like a loop pedal and a keyboard where I can just hit a drone, get a key. Like I've got a great synthesizer. I've got to make a lovely drone in whatever key I'm playing in. Make a particular loop. It, it it is such a great thing. It feels like you, could, you I'm jamming with people again. Mm-hmm. So it's been I hadn't jammed with people for a while before lockdown. So it's it's nearly a year of, since I've properly been able to play with other people and explore that spontaneity that you get to do with other people. And I think there's a, there's a part of playing a a stringed instrument, which is my first stringed instrument, that you only get to do when you're playing with other people or with a record. Well, record is kind of different. The improvising doesn't feel as right as when you're kind of playing in the moment. For mm-hmm. me, playing with the loop pedals and my synths has given me that over the last few weeks, and it's bloody ah, oh, it's so much fun, so <laughs> well, much it, fun. It's a, it, it definitely ties in with this episode this week, which is yeah, and so yeah, just to, go, to finish that thought, so yeah. Knowing that I've been thinking about all that stuff, also in my previous life, I was a I was an audiovisual technician, so I did a lot did a lot of live stuff for a time. Unfortunately, a lot of that work was um, producing psytrance events in the absolute back end of the bush in Australia for like thirty six hours straight. Interesting times. <laughs> no, but there was a lot of uh, spent a lot of time in front of big sound systems, listening to pink noise for many hours tuning PAs and I loved it at the time and I haven't I haven't stepped in that world since back in that time too so over the last three weeks I think there's been all these little things have been just kind of making little synapse connections connections in my in the back of my mind and then to have the chat we end up having with um with Una Monaghan today's guest just I was giddy going in yeah so I love it yeah so Una Monaghan's a, a, a harpist she's a sonic artist She's a composer, she's an engineer, and the format for this episode is a bit different because <clears throat> because of the nature of 
um, in his work. It wasn't really practical for us to be able to figure out a way of recording uh, her material live. So we've broken with our lifelong tradition and we actually have constructed our conversation around some pieces from Una's album For, F-O-R. And um, we, we actually have loved it. We had this really interesting experience where all three of us listened to each piece at the same time, albeit you know via the internet. Um, and so the reactions that you have after we've listened to those pieces, I think you'll find are, are really pretty profound. And to be able to have a, a direct emotional back and forth with the artist who's created them is um, is just, it was really a beautiful experience. So hopefully that will come across for you when you're listening to it. The other thing that will come across, hopefully, is that Una's heart playing is ex- mm. exquisite. It's so, so nice. beautiful. Um, so, so yeah, that that's today's episode. And it's, it's bloody brilliant. I think me and Darren are both buzzing from yeah. having just recorded it. Um, so one other thing I want to mention about about Una's work is Una has been involved in Fair Play, which is a, a movement that um, started in Ireland to deal with issues of uh, lack of representation of female artists in performance and production in all aspects of the music industry. And she's also uh, been part of the collective Misha Foster, which, um, to use their own description, aims to change the culture of abuse and harassment within the Irish traditional music and dance scene. So we'll get into that a bit later on in the conversation. And I think you'll find that uh, Una's incredibly articulate about it. And it's, it, it ties in in part with some of the conversation we had with Anya Tyrrell mm-hmm. uh, a few weeks back, I think, as well. Uh, Darren, um, just in terms of questioning aspects of quote-unquote the tradition and what that means yeah one other thing i wanted just to mention to you you're many of you probably listen to this on headphones anyway um, but if you have a chance to listen to this episode on headphones um that's a good way to make sure that you really get the benefit of the dynamic range in una's work um so uh, just uh, it really rewards immersive listening so yeah um, get your headphones on and you'll really you'll really get the best out of it so. let's get in there this is so much fun enjoy
Una Monaghan, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. What was that uh, that we've just heard there from, from the album? That was two hornpipes, um, Nanny Norris and The Clean Player, and they were written at very different times. The first one came first. Um, it was a hornpipe that I wrote and I used to play to my nanny, who my grandmother. Um, she was in a nursing home <clears throat> towards the last few years of her life. And I used to go up and play to her, but also play to the other people who were living there as well. And that piece seemed to give her a bit of a lift and it was pretty, it was, it felt to me to be joyful. And so that became her piece. And The Clean Player was then a piece written for my, my granda, who was her husband. He died many years before that when I was seven. And is one of the great reminders to me how, how deep an effect a grandparent can have on your life even if they're only there for a very short period of time. So even though he was only in my life really for seven or eight years, I still am very much affected by his presence today. And he was a hurler. So uh, Uh the the story about him was that Nanny always used to tell us, your granda was a very clean player. You know, he he was on the pitch and never a bad word out of him. And never, you know, he he never fouled. He was just, you know, really skillful hurler. And I remember telling my my aunties that story, you know, their their daughters, uh, three county players uh, for Antrim. And I remember saying, you know, yeah, Nanny used to always say Granda was a clean player. And the three of them, their jaws just dropped. They just looked at me as if to say, (laughs) you believed that. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that was Nanny and Granda's hornpipes. And um, because they were on the album at at the the time and I, I was making working out really how to combine or possible ways of combining traditional music with electronics and that was one of the ways I thought to do it. As far as I remember it it was either there there were triggered samples there um, lots of different types of, of samples some of which were from the harp itself and some uh, pre-recorded. And So when you say when you say triggered samples you mean um, that your movement, uh, the movement of your hands and the harp. Uh, actually, can you explain what those are? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, as f- they're either they either happen from pitch detection. So when when the computer would hear a particular note in the piece, it would trigger a sample or motion sensor. So when when I made a certain movement, it would trigger a certain noise. So I, I'm pretty sure with the hornpipes there that it was done via a motion sensor. So when my hand moved in a certain way that would alert the computer and it would play a short sound sample. So I had selected these sound samples beforehand and and made a a collection of them that when triggered randomly in in different orders, that they would make a sort of an accompaniment or a background or something that would go along with the piece, but crucially that it would go along with it in some sense rhythmically. So I was thinking really of the way that guitars or bazooki players will accompany a hornpipe or accompany a reel, something. And there, the interplay between me playing and the accompanist is crucial to the lift of the piece and the enjoyment of it and, and how mm-hmm. you how you really, what music you produce really. And so in doing that with the computer, I wanted to approach a place where I didn't know what it, exactly what it was going to do. I knew the sound world it was going to produce and it would do it rhythmically with respect to what I was playing. If I was to stop dead in the middle of that hornpipe, it would also stop. So in a way, there's lots that's similar about playing with a guitarist or a bazooka player or an accompanist. 
in in that way and it provides a back end that's slightly well it's different <laughs> to the the guitar but it it provided me with an experience where I felt like I had an interplay with other interesting sounds and that I was doing that live mm-hmm. yeah, my I, I've so many questions but I'll do them one at a time so if you you this, your approach is is really um, it's a refined re- approach, right? So you've obviously, I'm, I'm guessing, you need to be working with the electronic side of things for a while to be able to have a fluidity between the electronics and your musicianship, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. What's your like? What, normally, at this start of the podcast, I'd ask, I'd be straight away asking you about your musical history, but I'm actually really interested in the electronic journey. Where did where did that begin? And how did it start then presenting itself in the music this way? I mean, I guess it depends how far back I go. <clears throat> I know that I was interested in electronics, <clears throat> excuse me, in relation to sound for a long time. And I can trace that back to the first performances with a PA system. You know, the the expansion of the sound from the harp. And when you're playing any instrument, your ear is close to the instrument. Your 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 spatial awareness or where the sound is coming from is 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 clear to you when you expand that with a pa system you know it can be in a small room or in my case at the time it it was in a really big concert hall the the projection or the movement of that sound that is a close thing to you out into the world and the change in character of that sound and the potential for it to reach so much further was a real sense of wonder to me and so i became interested in sound engineering really early on um after that, you know, I'd, I'd worked through different subjects and I, I studied physics, which, of course, is very much at the, the mm-hmm. basis of sound and how it behaves. And I then uh, decided that I I wanted to do a year of, of experimental music and, and music that would put technology at the forefront of what, what was making that music. So I did a master's in sonic arts. And that, I think, was the year where I became really... I became really much more exposed to different types of music and the music of the uh, late 20th century and, and and electronics and experimentalism and creating music with computers, um, interacting with computers while you were playing. So I started to do electronic or electroacoustic composition in and of itself, you know, tape pieces, fixed media pieces. And then um, I began to work more in sound engineering and eventually I got to a place where I thought, well, I play the harp, and I work in electronic music and I really just wanted to reach a point where both of those things weren't separate anymore. Yeah, yeah. And so I've just ever since been trying to find interesting ways, ways that are interesting for me conceptually, but also as a performer. You know, I want to be interested in what I'm doing as I'm playing. And playing the harp for me is is a beautiful thing and one that's very close to my harp, heart. But combining that with things in performance that make it even more challenging and interesting to me personally in that moment while I'm playing is is one of the the most important things to me um and so, so are you a um are you a are you mostly in the studio or you're a live engineer live. Live. I, I, I mean I, I've done both but I my my work over the last decade and the, what what I've chosen to do has been live and again, I don't think that's an accident, just in terms of what I'm interested in and, and things happening in the moment. 
yeah. and, I, and 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 the joy of that happening and there being an audience and it being a connection not so much even the audience but the connection between me and the performers between the performers and the audience and how all of that happens in a live ecosystem and also and I, I think there's there's a generous dollop of of I think character in that my character I, I find I was very very lucky at the start of my training to be to have access to to brilliant studios really well equipped studios at the Sonic Arts Research Centre in Belfast and while that was amazing I did find the studios didn't have windows for the most part and I, I found myself that I would go into a headspace in the studio that is still really beautiful really private but I would be in there for hours and and I, I, I knew I got to know the feeling that I would have when I came out of the studio, you know, this sense that time had disappeared and that no one had I hadn't interacted with anyone else for a long time. And <laughs> and so I think that given the choice now, my, my focus is on life because there are connections that can be made in the studio. I do fear, given the, the range of choice, uh, you know, you can be in there forever. You can work yeah. on a recorded piece of music forever. And you kind of transition it, to being a on the computer rather than making music. Very yeah, easily. it's a real relief to have. You know, you can also you can also tweak a live setup forever, but at some point the audience is going to walk in and the producer is <laughs> yeah. going to say, "You're done here. Yeah. Your sound check is over." You know, and I find that while it has its really stressful aspects. It also is a beautiful ending, you know. It allows mm-hmm. you to release your sense of, but it could just be one more wee bit better. Yeah. It allows you to say, it's done, let's do the gig. Now it's over, now we get to go home. Now we have a rest, now we have a drink, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I like that natural end in live work. And I, I find the studio work to be more challenging for that reason. I was just going to compliment you though on the the studio work. Did, did were you the engineer on on this album as well? No, no. Um, <laughs> I tried to make this album for for many years in different, you know, inadequate setups and in, in various bedrooms over the years, and you know, all of those things happened. I never got any work done because I was constantly wondering at every point: was this the best mic to use? Was this the best situation to be in? And eventually I thought this is never going to get made and it's best for me just because I could do it doesn't mean I should and it's best for me to give this over to someone else. But that decision as well was really carefully thought out. I I got an engineer who I really trusted and really liked and who was brilliant. Uh, Sonically it's gorgeous. No, it's um, mixed by by Tim Matthew um, and recorded by Tim. And then, you know, we worked together and listening to how uh, and I, I mean, there were a lot of iterations of those mixes and there's lots of things now that I would do differently, but I I love that about albums that they capture that moment and then you move on and you change. Yeah. What a reminder, like the, particularly your samples. Did you ever listen to, do you listen to Burial? Say the name again, Burial? Yeah, Burial. Oh, yes. But that's what, like when I was listening to this earlier on today, I, I was at the beach and I was kind of a lot of background noise. But how we've played it tonight, I got to sit down somewhere quiet and actually listen to the to the sonic values. It's actually fidelity of, of and it, that's what it reminded me. It reminded me of kind of like untrue or that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know the album, you kind of you'll understand what I'm talking about. But beautifully textural, but the 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 
yeah, I don't know, the fidelity of each individual sound is like you can feel it. So I love it. It's so nice. So that's that's so lovely of you to say. And you know, it 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 really made me think about listening contexts as well because I find that when you one of the reasons I wanted to make an album was so that it would so that more people would be able to hear it not just in a live the music not just in a live context but as soon as you do that then of course people are listening in many different contexts they're listening in the car they're listening with background noise I normally don't mind background noise I think because there's a lot of that in the album it just adds to it for me but what my my issues are the pieces that are missing sometimes you know you you people form an opinion without haven't heard maybe everything that you can hear if you use headphones or but but that's really the nature of how anyone consumes art at all and it's wonderful that there are different layers that can be got depending on what your listening context is we should acknowledge what what has just happened as well i just realized we're we're way into this and we've we've skipped totally past kind of contextualizing why we're talking about what we're talking about at this stage, like after listening to a pre-recorded piece, which wouldn't be normal for anyone that's listening at the moment. Um, so I know you and Dom spoke during the week and you were talking about whether to actually play t- tonight or or to play pre-recorded. Can you take us through some of the kind of the ins and outs of the decision that we kind of got to, to where we are now? Yeah, I, I mean, it's really multi-layered. I think one of the things is just this week, uh, I have some recordings to make and, and whenever, I think that the pandemic has really made me think quite a good bit more about what I put out online, what I stream online. And, and I guess when you don't have any live outlet for the music anymore, when the, the streamed and, and recorded parts of, of your output is really all the, your, that you have. Um, it made me think a wee bit more about when I do that and how I do it and what I put out and, mm-hmm. and, and also the amount of time that goes into making recorded music versus the time that goes into making live music. And some of the things about about the joy of playing live is to do with connection with with listeners to do with a, with with being in a room with people and so i think at this point i'm still thinking about about how i approach playing whenever those people are not there anymore and so i mean maybe next week or or next month i might have a different relationship with it but at the minute i'm just a little bit thoughtful about it i guess mm-hmm. well, it was really nice to to start tonight with with playing i keep on saying tonight it's your <laughs> lunchtime but uh <laughs> to to start off as as reflective as we we started off was a was a real turn on where because normally and this is nothing against obviously anyone else that we've interviewed but normally we have a tune and probably myself and dominic are listening to the tune but we're also kind of prepping ourselves to get ready and and tonight well dom i can only speak for myself and i'm sure you were in the same situation where it was about really listening and kind of yeah and 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 actually uh, one of the things that uh, i was thinking about today and after we'd spoken yesterday and we spoke about just what you were talking about there and how the pandemic and how seeing everyone streaming music online and 
um, and wondering about that. And what I was thinking about today was just the that there was um, in a way there there, there is a a pleasing um, element of uncertainty about how we're going to conduct this conversation, right? Mm. And um, and so I like that, and I, I like the idea that that we could allow it to develop along whatever lines, <laughs> whatever lines we, whatever lines it takes for itself. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, and for me, that's a sense of relief. You know, <laughs> that, that's good. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's I, it's nice, and I think that I think that's a guiding principle in a lot of the music I try to make as well. Um, uh-huh. And that you set up a scenario or a context where it's likely to be okay, and it's likely to, and then you you allow it to, to develop. So I have I've one other thing that I wanted to ask you before we maybe think about another piece of music, and that was about um, on on that first piece that we heard, Nanny Nora's and the Clean Player. Um, I don't know if you're able to articulate this, but. Uh, is there a reason why a horn pipes seem to be the right tune for that? Like when you're composing it, do you mean the right tune for the introduction of the triggered rhythmic samples, or do you mean for the themes that that they were written about? For the things that they were written about, a hornpipe rather than say a jig or a slip jig or for my grandparents you mean yeah yeah they i mean the the hornpipe was in a the first one and it felt really light i wrote it really because it covered the whole or or a big range of the harp and mm-hmm. when i was writing it i was thinking what's gonna what is what makes this a, a tune written by a harp player and one of the things we have is is a, an easy range we can cover a big range um mm-hmm. it was an a major it was light and it felt positive and and that's why I would play it to Nanny because I felt like it might be a piece of light, and and then that became associated with her in my mind, and and then I followed a hornpipe for her husband with another hornpipe. So mm-hmm. it, it it was really just um, I I like hornpipes, you know, they're a bit. I like how uh, when they're notated because. Often when they're notated, it's a dotted rhythm, but they don't get notated like that a lot of the time. We just kind of internalize that it's a hornpipe and we add the dots in our mind. I was playing Mm -hmm. recently with a violinist who's classically trained and they were learning the hornpipe and I'd given them the notes, the dots. And within about 10 seconds, they were like, hang on, you're you're swinging this. And I was like, oh yeah, don't, sorry, I forgot to say, you know, internalize (laughs) the hornpipe rhythm. That's just a given. (laughs) And and really, I, I, I was kind of, I had that kind of awe or respect that this person, you know, was able to read the piece as written rather than as a hornpipe because the the traditional rhythms are so ingrained in you if you've if you've been playing them if that's your your background, um, and I thought it's so interesting. I don't even know how he was, you know, I I would have had to really and I do have to really work and part of my interest in technology is. The fact that I'm trying to play computer music from a background of very strict rhythms, yeah, and so it it was still amazing to me that 
he could play that as written rather than as trained because for me I would have had to really work to get myself out of a hornpipe looking at the notes you know well I've always as well and you know I'm sure there's so many great players listen to this podcast they know a lot more than me but I've always felt like a hornpipe is a really hard rhythm to pull off beautifully because it it, it's it can so it's a bit like um like the rhyme in a poem right that Mm. sprung rhythm is like a rhyme or a rhythm in a poem and if it if it goes wrong you can end up with this tumbledy 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 um rhythm that that it becomes very trite very easily so it's, oh. there's a re- such an elegance to be able to pull it off do you know what I mean I've never thought of hornpipes like that but I see exactly what you mean and I think uh, for me a lot of whether it's trite or not would be in the notes themselves mm-hmm. you know your right hornpipes have a real risk especially because of some of the phrasing and the cadences that the, the melodies have there is a real risk that they can feel like that um, but it's so interesting to, to be asked to consider that I think I find hornpipes to be sort of a wee rebel, You're like a wee rebel in the world of the, the, <laughs> the, the um, what's the, what am I looking for here? Like the the reels and jigs are are so standard and um, kind of, they're kind of forceful, and I find the hornpipe to be, you know, the wink, <laughs> and it's kind of it, it's allowed to be slower, it's allowed to swing, it's allowed to present itself on paper, not as it's going to be heard so much. <laughs> and so uh-huh. for me hornpipes provide a wee a pocket of of mischief um and there are so many hornpipes that that have like if you look at sean mcguire's music for example hornpipes were always the places where you would find especially in fiddle music you would find maybe more accidentals you would find more leaps because they're allowed to be slow so they can accommodate this sort of thing maybe is one theory um so they were always a place of of rebellion I, I felt and and on and the unexpected and mm-hmm. and they also allowed you to play slow and in, in a place sometimes I find traditional music at times in my life has been too quick for me and and didn't provide space to be yourself because because there was a conf- you were trying to conform in certain ways so yeah the hornpipe for me has always been a wee bit of space Lovely. Well, before we move away, can I, can I ask one question? Because I, I, I'm afraid we won't go back to uh, Nanny Nora's again. When, when you think of it, and when you were playing it to Nanny, was it? Did you did you present it with the audio triggers and samples? Oh no, that piece. That one of the things about my album is that I it was the first one I made, so I wanted to. It is the first one I made. So I wanted it to include all of the compositions that were special to me from I started composing. So some of those are really old and these these pieces were being played when I was 17, you know, way before I was I even had access to any of this or or could make it happen. So So, where, so the electronics where came later now? and that the electronics came later and that that was a strange decision too. Um, there was a there was a balance there to be struck between what I thought of as straight traditional tunes and the electronics and at what point is it okay to add them and how do I add them and do I want this piece to be presented as such but I, I was still trying to think of the album as a whole and you know what pieces did have it and what didn't and would there and how would the tracks that had electronics be related to the ones that did 
uh, didn't. So yeah, the electronics were put on afterwards and and they were done with a sense that I didn't want to lose the rhythm of the pieces and the lift of the pieces. So I I had to make those triggers short and sharp and and that they would still come out in, in some sort of rhythmic way. But I play that piece now, you know, I, I sometimes include it in, in performance with field recordings and, it, and then I, I, I never really perform those hornpipes as they're recorded with those triggers. Yeah, I think that was that was where I was going to get to with the question was where, like where when you when you think of that that set does it does it live with the triggers? It, it seems like it does now, like in your mind's eye, when like the personality of that set of tunes now has the triggers, even though they were recorded and put in kind of stone with things that were maybe a bit spontaneous and and um, improvisational. Is that where is that the place it occupies within your heart for that set? No, currently the recording is the place the triggers live. I have not rec- I've not played that since with the triggers. Um, anytime I play those hornpipes now, it's either with uh, a soundscape of field recordings or on their own straight harp. Um, okay. And that's yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, should should we just take a pause there and and play another piece? Is that Seem yeah. like an okay space for you, Darren. Completely. Yeah. Um, do Do you have any thoughts in it? What What we might. No, um, I mean, I what? I liked how you guys had chosen some. Uh, I okay. there was one other thing I was going to say though about the hornpipes. I think yes, I think that a lot of the music I play live now has has become more focused on on not needing or not specifically referencing full traditional music tunes so while that set for me is a bridge between the the straight traditional tunes and the electronics the things that I tend to focus on when performing live now have a lot less reference to full Irish traditional tunes and I think that's maybe why that set with its accompanying triggers it it doesn't I don't engage with it so much on a day-to-day basis now but maybe I will again in the future because the patches that I made to perform those with the album they all still exist and I can revisit those at some stage mm-hmm. so you you program that as well yeah well wow. and what kind of senses do you use is it more is it like 3d tracking or is it physical senses you wear or yeah it um it's a motion sensor which I wear on my left hand um it's gone through a couple of iterations. Um, there's a f- there's a video I think of one of the earliest points where I was I tried to play and track motion. I went through a weird um, process at the start where I was what one of the the ways that I could see for musicians performing with computers was to use motion tracking, and. To me, the essence of the music was in the rhythm and in in the melody and the, the music itself, not how your body was moving while you were playing it. And of course, tra- traditional music is notorious for this, really, when you compare it to the, the movements of musicians in other genres. They're, they're, even in classical music, there, there can be some movements that people make when they, when they play a flourish or... or 
and, and in traditional music, it's kind of known for for having quite a static. Uh, this has changed more recently, but when you look at a traditional player, there's not they're not trying to move their body in a way that is anything beyond what it takes to play the piece, by and large. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking, well, I'm a trad player. What motion is there that is related to the music that's going to be interesting for me to track um and at the time people you know there were people who weren't working in traditional music and they would say well we see you all at the sessions and you're tapping your foot like you know you could stick something on the foot (laughs) and I was thinking wow well that opens the whole debate between what the relationship between the foot tapping and the music is and it seemed strange to me to put a motion tracker on the foot of when that, that I mean it is a part of it and it is something that I do and I find it hard to play some pieces without doing it like I said I physically can't play them properly <laughs> without tapping but that being a given it still seemed to me to be a bizarre place to try and capture the essence of the music because for me electronics I wanted these to be embedded in in the music somehow the one I didn't want them to be a layer just stuck on the top you know a backing track or anything like that I wanted mm-hmm. them to be intimately related That's to so what insightful. I was producing in the in the moment you know they couldn't so that mm-hmm. ruled out loop tracks for me it ruled out loop stations it, it, yeah so because I needed it to be related to what I was stop if I go quicker yeah. you go quicker if I stop you stop you know so the foot tapping, I looked at it for a while, but I kind of, the shutters came down a wee bit about motion tra- tracking because I thought, well, that's not where this, th- that's not where what I'm trying to capture lives in my movements. Um, so I, I played for a wee bit. I was looking at pitch tracking. There's loads of issues with it, especially if you play an instrument, which is, you know, has the opportunity to play several notes at once. <laughs> like I play the harp so I can play, you know, eight notes minimum at, at once. And and any really sophisticated pitch tracker is still going to struggle with that. Um, and also, mm-hmm. even if you only play one note, if you there are all of the harmonics and the resonance of the instrument, so it still struggles with which note in that string sound you mean it's got all the partials so it yeah just what you were saying there about sitting with the technology for a while and working out what parts of this is going to serve what I want to capture in this particular piece and so the way I work now is that the the tool that I choose depends on the piece and it depends on what I'm trying to do depends on what I'm interested in that week um With the motion sensor, I eventually came around to it because, well, because there's been a lot of work done on gesture recognition and I find that I could use those tools to capture the gestures that I was making as a harp player. I have a very distinct, harp players have distinctive damping motions, which are relatively easy to capture. Um, And so I allowed it in for a while and I thought... If you damp a string, that is related to the rhythm because the left hand on the harp, thanks to the development of that accompaniment, and Michael Rooney in particular has a really rhythmic style of playing. Um, the the left hand has a rhythm and and is capturable by motion sensor. 
So in a, I, I want to ask you a bit more about that and the, the influence of, like you mentioned, uh, other heart players and, and also just the, the beginnings of your um, orientation in, in traditional music as well. So can we can we have a uh, play a piece first, though? Um, Darren, I was wondering about number three on the album there, Mammies. Um, so I know this will be another, I'm, I'm guessing in it that this is another piece that is uh, uh, an older piece for you. Mm-hmm. Um, are you okay with this? Yeah. Using sure. that one? Is that okay for you, Darren? Yeah, I can hit play whenever you're ready. Okay. I think uh, I'm ready now if you want to go for it. Mammy, great tune. That's how it goes, right? Yeah, see, um, I, I wrote that towards the end of 2003, start of 2004, I think. Um, right. And, yeah, it's really hard to give your mommy a piece of music. I mean, where do you start? <laughs> where did you start? Uh, I think, well, as I was getting older, I was able to see more clearly the parts of her life that would have been hard and the parts of her life that would have been lighter. 
And I think that was where I started to try and capture some portrayal that I was beginning to understand better than I would have about what's what it might have felt like. What's she like, your man? She is a sculptor. Uh, she's a bronze sculptor, and she trained at the Edinburgh College of Art in the seventies. And she, I mean, Belfast in the seventies was a a very tough place. We were from West Belfast in Andersonstown, and just just thinking of how that was to to go over to Edinburgh and to come back during the troubles. She had seven kids. Um, and I think there's a greater appreciation of, of what it takes to, to bring up seven kids. <laughs> um, and she, and how, how, as well as an artist, that affects the amount of time that you can devote to your work. And I've been very lucky, partly because of her and, and my daddy's you know, investment in me that I've been able to carve out a time for, for artistic work. And I think one of the things that strikes me about Mammy is that that's an artist who had seven kids by the time she is the age I am now. And the effect that that would have on your art and I, and and the time that you can devote to that. But uh, she still did. And her body of work, the body of work that she has produced is amazing. And um, she's an inspiration to me, really. What What's her name? Noreen McAllister. Right. Right. And then, so um, what about your dad? Is, is he also an artist? Daddy is, uh, he, he's a math teacher, uh, an amazing person. Right. And uh, someone that I get my logic and... I guess sense of conviction from um, a brilliant person very interested in, in birds and nature and yeah I'm very lucky in the parents that I have with your mom uh, um, did she ever ex- uh, does she ever express the, the sense of the time lost from her art you know what I mean I don't she has never phrased it to me like that and and that's I guess that's the portrayal that I just gave of it which is probably wrong um she I've spoken to her about it and and what she said was that yes it's there there's a lot of time that that she didn't have to devote to it but I think it her life has influenced her art as well in ways that she sees as so positive and and really it ultimately is because i've i think we've come now to be able to work together i've in recent years been able to work with her on a number of projects and that has been such Uh a great joy do you remember your first encounter with a harp um i do I mean, there's one that I remember, and <laughs> that makes it sound like you meet her walking down the street. <laughs> well, you just go around the corner in Andystown, and there's a harp. One of the problems was that it wasn't possible to meet one walking down the street, and and that <laughs> was again, you know, a reflection on my parents that they that they were told by me that I was going to be a harp player, and that they really had to 
do something about this conundrum <laughs> and they did because <laughs> there, there weren't any around there weren't any obvious teachers at the time um so there's the encounter that i remember with the harp which is the first time i got to play one but there's apparently a previous encounter which is maybe what made me want to to do it in the first place and that i only remember from being told uh, and that's the place where memory between what happens and what you think happens because you were told the story kind of blurs um uh-huh. so i th- they th- what is that story oh they think that i i i just became convinced that i wanted to play the harp bef- before there was the opportunity to do that and and it's possible that mommy and, and daddy would have tried to bring us to concerts whenever they could and it's possible that i w- went into the back of an orchestral concert and heard the sound of the orchestra but if you're tiny and if you're at the back of the hall one of the things you can see is the gold of of the harp it's a big instrument and if if you point at that and say what's that and they say a harp and what you can hear is the sound of a full orchestra <laughs> i do wonder whether um <laughs> i do wonder whether what i was what i thought was the sound of a harp was really the sound of a harp at the time because i think the first time i would have seen one would have been in that context um, and I've always loved the sound of orchestras, really, really have. And it's it's one of the great, um, I guess, tensions in me that I I love orchestras so much, but I don't really do anything that slots in there easily. <laughs> Not yet, anybody. Uh, nobody's commissioned you yet. That's well, there... it's got to be coming somewhere <laughs> down the line. But I mean, as a performer, you know, there was a point in my life where I I started also when I was young playing the violin and I played in um, children's orchestras in Belfast at the time and the sound of of multiple instruments and multiple of the same instrument is always something that really strikes me but there came a point where I focused more on the harp it's kind of like with any kids you know the Saturday morning is the time when you have to do it and it's the time everything happens at once and I chose to to go to the harp classes and Mm -hmm. um my brother who was in a similar situation playing traditional music but also classical he's a bassoonist um and so he he focused on his classical training and i focused on my traditional training and at some stage when we were both about 15 16 and i i was going to see him playing in orchestras and i was really missing that sound and it became clear to me that the path i was on was not going to land me on a stage in the middle of an orchestra the way he was and so for a brief time, I tried to find out, could I, could I pivot and, and also do classical harp to, to keep that door open for me? And I didn't have the greatest experience at a classical harp workshop, unfortunately. And so I, I kind of let that go. And what, what happened, Una? Uh, there were just some comments made about technique and the difference in technique that you need to play the two different styles of harp. And I think at the time I rationalized it to myself that, well, you know, if I play traditional harp and I start to learn this new technique, it might affect how I play traditional harp. And that's what I told myself. Yeah. And I, I decided that best not to risk it. And looking back now, that that was a, it was a way of coping with what I'd been told, I think. Um, but do you think that was wrong? Because I mean, I, I, when I hear, you, you know, singers who have been 
had a natural voice and then have been trained and then trying to go back to sing folk music, you can you can tell that there's something lost. Maybe. Um I mean what I what I do think is that at any point we're we're a combination of all of the influences and the paths that we've taken and I'm really happy with where I'm finding myself and where and where I'm working. So yeah, they're they're and yeah. I do know you know, I do I do work with some players who have been classically trained who are trying to to unlearn some of the rigidity that they have absorbed, which is an amazing uh, training. You know, it's a wonderful thing and it's something that I don't have as strongly. Um, But then again, I'm doing exactly the same thing. In a lot of my experimental work, I'm trying to find ways out of the, the rhythm that's almost just instilled in you it's what I was saying earlier about the hornpipe you know you show me a hornpipe on a page and I immediately put the rhythm in you you show me the notes for a reel because and that's why so many of us I've just written out a piece of music for someone last night in the letters and you don't have to write the rhythm because you just say this is a reel here's the letters and it they just fall into it you fall into the jig you and so when you're trying to play experimental music which has no rhythm and that rhythm is so deeply taught. It's a really interesting place to to come from, whatever your training yeah. is, to, to find where you want to keep that training and where you want to look outside of it. So I just feel like we all have different types of training and and sometimes we want to carry some of that and sometimes we want to look elsewhere. But yeah, the, the, the classical training, it... it it was there present very early on, but um, I didn't pursue it so much. Who was teaching you um, the the traditional style, and like who were the teachers that made an impact on you? And can we can I ask why? I wonder why you refer to it as traditional training. Just to my ears, that it's it doesn't sound like what I normally hear. Was it when you say training? Is it a teacher like Dom is asking? Oh no! I just mean I just mean the the background and influences from where you come, what what your music, where your music has come from, and I mean that in the context of of you know being in a room with musicians from many different backgrounds. Like, yeah, I guess if you were to ask about training, that that word, you know that probably means a very different thing to me or to anyone maybe coming from a place where you learn traditional music orally and it's a different situation than say a pianist who who had to work through scales in a very rigorous way but I I mean they're both just different types of training um you know um I'm definitely trained in traditional music however that happened (laughs) <laughs> no, I just, sometimes you just hear a word, and if it doesn't sit, if you, you know, I, yeah, I would have regretted not asking you when I was listening back. Maybe we need another word. Um, maybe that's not the right word, but I, I think it also relates a wee bit to some of the conversation around classical music and traditional music as well. You know, mm. it's mm, it's you strange absorb to the me. tradition you learn. <laughs> it's strange to me whenever there's this sense that one is trained and one is not. I think it's just yeah, two completely. very different types of learning, and and they have a lot of similarities too. I mean, there are there are 
what what could be referred to as rules in traditional music depending on who you ask <laughs> yeah absolutely so who, um, to dom's question sorry dom you go ahead no you go ahead, go ahead darren well no i was just because i had railroaded what you would ask about yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're always so doing who, uh, that so uh, so who <laughs> Tell me your question again. I can't remember now. <laughs> oh, it was, oh, it was, teachers. was it well, not about You teachers? know what? I was trying to get a sense of. I was. It was like who who was teaching you? And I was just trying to get a sense of that. The feel of like um, what what years are we talking about in Belfast? And then who was teaching you? I started in 1992, as far as I know, um, because after wanting to play the harp for a while and having access to other instruments, you know, there was whistle, fiddle. Um, there was a piano in the house, um, so it was still it was a while before it was a while after I started asking to play the harp that it was possible to do that, and mm-hmm. the the main reason was that Janet Harbison was instrumental in organising a commemoration of the seventeen ninety two Harpers gathering in Belfast in nineteen ninety two, so uh, that there was a week of of harp workshops and. Uh, there was a beginner's Gosh, class. You know, I haven't heard. And I haven't heard her name for years. Oh, she she was my first teacher and a massive influence. Um, a brilliant composer, a brilliant musician, a brilliant person at bringing people together. Huge in the history uh-huh. of of the harp and the, and in what we know of the harp today, and and in the revival really of the harp. Like when I started playing, I would have known most of the harp players in Ireland, but who they were. You know, and now no chance because there are so many. And her dedication to teaching and to working and, and performance in harp and the arrangements of the harp music that she put together, as well as her work with the Belfast and Irish harp orchestras, that was huge for me. I mean, it, it was my first lesson for a start and it was access to a hard harp. Um, it was my gateway to, to owning my first harp, which came about as a result of that festival. There was a harp for the most promising beginner which I was lucky enough to get and otherwise I just wouldn't have had access to that at all so I owe her my 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 playing really um at Janet Harbison and then shortly after that I I also got lessons from Grania Hambley who who was up in Belfast at Queen's um a brilliant technical player just I, I was at a concert of hers a couple of years ago very recently and um just no change whatsoever in the technique the sparkling harp technique in traditional music is just it moves me so much to hear her play still and um, so those those were my two main teachers um yeah and did you ever come across marie mcgowan yeah uh, she was actually there at that festival too um yeah is she from Ballycastle? i think she is actually. Yeah. yeah, she's from Rathlin. She grew up on Rathlin Road, just around the corner from. I us. might be wrong, and, but um, when I was a kid, and again, you you have these memories of noticing things then, the things that were important to you then, and one of the things was that the physicality, the shape of the harp, and I think on Marie's harp, she had a trim down the signboard of flowers, and for a seven-year-old looking at that, it just was one of the. It was a beautiful harp, you know. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> she went to school with my sisters, that's all. And I remember she was, like, I'd left Ballycastle by that time. And I remember my sister saying, oh, Marie McGowan's playing the harp. And I was like, 
is she? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and it was just uh, like you, like you were saying, nobody played the harp. Yeah, right. There just weren't uh, there just weren't any. It was like Ulan Pipe used to be. You know, there was maybe one set in the whole of Ireland. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I mean, it's amazing. It's really really great. And and to be you know for that to be the case for the the national instrument, it was kind of bizarre at the time. <laughs> and and yeah, happily, well, I, I asked this and. Do you know, like, what, I, I'm kind of familiar with what happened with the Ulan Pipes to, to some extent. And I asked, we've only ever had one other harp player on. And I, I was asking about how did it become the national instrument, but it wasn't present for so long. Have you, like, I'm not asking for a history lesson, but is there a, is there a quick kind of, this is why? Well, I, I'm not a historian and I should know a lot more about it, but, um, of course, it has. It is one of the instruments that's considered to have been here the longest. Um, some of the instruments you can see where they originated from other places and were incorporated into the tradition. But I think the harp. There are records of the harp being here for a long, long time. Um, we had we had a real history of of the harp being uh, something that was well regarded, and harpers to the chieftains were were such an important, I guess, part of life. Music was such an important part of life. Um, in the 12th century, there's writings about people coming to Ireland and being struck by the harp playing. So it was something that's considered uh, a real, some, something that was there for a long time and that had a real status in Irish life uh, for so many years. and. You then had the period of harpers traveling around and and having patrons um being given food and board for playing to the gentry and for composing music so I think it's really just a, there's such a strong history of it is, is there someone that you that's marked as the like the folk revival like the like the Mary Bergen of whistle or i don't know Donnelly of Bazoogie? like is there is there someone that kind of took it and brought it to a, a new national revival? I think there are several. I mean, around the time that Janet was playing, Marnie Cassie was also playing. Um, further back than that, I, I don't want to start naming harp players' names because I'll forget people. <laughs> but uh, I, I can speak from a personal level and, and I just know that at that time there were very few harp players and Janet was huge in, in my eyes in terms of the amount of teaching and the amount of performance and of providing performance opportunities. And I think players like Michael and Michael Rooney and, and Granny Hambly were involved at that time. Uh, so personally, that that was huge for me. I was going to I was going to say as well, like uh, um, this is just uh, again, it, um, we specialize in half arsed theories on this podcast. So, uh, <laughs> and I'm a bona fide idiot. Like, I, I'm, I'm new <laughs> so, to pretty much well, traditional I, like, music. My, my, um, apart from Derek Bell and the Chieftains, right, who played the harp in the Chieftains for many years, I, I remember being very aware of the fact that Marie Brennan and Clannad played mm-hmm. the harp, right? Um, and, and they were um, such a huge commercial influence. Um, in the late seventies and through the eighties, right, mm-hmm. and and so to to me that like obviously that's moving beyond the traditional world, but um, yeah, when I think about that now, it, it's literally just crossed my mind. It's like yeah, that's right. She 
she played the harp and that was a that was a big it was a big band yeah i mean the harp it does have that baggage and some of the portrayals of the harp um when recorded music became more widely available was of the harp and song and mm-hmm. one of the things i'm always and- asked is well not so much now but when i was growing up it's like oh you play the harp do you sing and i didn't sing and if you want to get the wedding gigs, you have to be able to do a wee bit of the singing. I don't know. I've got enough wedding gigs without singing. Like, (laughs) 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 Um, but yeah, I I just so so there is that image of the harp and the long dress and the song and Turlacha Carlin. I know Carlin. Yeah, but I mean, and that's that's a massive part of the history of the harp as well. That that tradition of singing with the harp. Um, So it it does have a lot of imagery associated with it and and there are the associations with Ireland and um yeah yeah so uh, so, we had a really interesting you know Lisa Kelly and and uh there's this really great festival of the harp on Achill Island and they have discussions as part of that festival and I took part in one a couple of years ago about about the imagery of the harp and and one of those is the the harp as an image of the Irish state and and the government bodies. Our government has has the harp as a as an image. Um, and those those debates about the harp as an image and what it portrays is is really interesting as well. And I think has had an effect on some of my music too because as soon as you say the play, you play the harp back in the day, there were these follow up questions. And it became clear to me that it was maybe at the time an instrument that wasn't considered as versatile as other instruments. And so part of what I'm part of what influences the music I'm making is is to what extent do I want to reinforce that or to what extent do I want to try and move away from that in any particular piece. So I I have I have a question then that that leads on from that which is really about um, it's very easy to just wander into a session with a tin whistle in your inside pocket but obviously not so easy with a harp um, so I wanted to get a feel for you about your experience in sessions and so on but I was wondering if maybe uh, Darren should we have another piece of music first is that okay with you Anna Yeah, bring it by me. Okay, great. All right, hit and play now.
That was amazing. <laughs> the, the reason I wanted to to pick that one out is the well, the music's beautiful, but the the sample of the kids. Like me and me and Dom have spoken about this before, and I think I've gone through lots of different existential crises. Seas, what's the plural for that? <laughs> about living in Australia and not feeling being proper Irish and all those yada yada things. Anyone that's listened to the podcast has heard me talking about them before. And been from Drogheda, just like listening to accents from 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 Belfast. Like it's a, young I don't know what it is. Maybe I've met young young kids when I was a when I was a young kid myself and I kind of it's such a confident accent. And hearing that young like the young kid a few times when he's talking about like I don't know, he's teaching the kid how to give the fingers, or he's talking about um, "Don't touch my cousin." Like my initial one, first listening to that, I felt that terror again of kind of being antagonised by a young a young kid with such a a strong accent. Um, what you had mentioned is a there's quite a story behind that piece. Yeah, uh, I just gave you my my insight into how it made me feel. It probably has nothing to do with where you were going but there you go <laughs> no it has it has everything to do with it um every one of those points and one of the really rich things about that soundscape is that it can 
it can have all of these different responses and and that's why i love that piece it 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 means that people can give their own responses and it just is a set of building blocks that people can put together in different ways to shape their own uh, the representation of their own experiences and i can say that because it's not entirely me who made it you know <laughs> it um it it that soundscape is as a result of following a score by john cage uh so it's it was done in 1979 and his version of the piece was Roratorio and Irish Circus on Finnegan's Wake and his piece was a series of instructions on how to make a piece of text into a piece of music and in short uh, it has three parts so the first part is an editing of the text itself to produce other text that you read the second part is that you have to make a long list of all of the places and sounds mentioned in the book and then you record those places and those sounds and then you put them in order and overlapping as they appear on the timeline of the book as you read it and then the fourth part or the third part is music related to that uh, text so John Cage made this for for Finnegan's Wake he made the the representation in sound and uh-huh. In 2012, I, um, along with Martin Dowling, made uh, the same piece, but on the text, uh, The Star Factory by right. Kieran Carson. So Owen Vara, as it was made, is a representation in sound of Kieran Carson's book. And what appears in this piece, and Jarku, is the soundscape. So part two of that, which is a section of that book, all the places and signs recorded. So I made that soundscape and made the list from the book and I went and collected or recorded all of the signs and places. And then they they were put in order as they appear in the book. And that's a seven or so minute excerpt of one of my favourite sections of that. And then my own music played over the top. So when this was performed in 2012, it was performed with the music that was related to the book. It was performed with Kieran reading text edited by Martin Darling from his book. And that was a piece in itself, 90 minutes long. Right. I now use the soundscape that I made in performance with other harp improvisations over the top of it. And the reason I can do that is because it's a collection of signs that just bring up responses and memories exactly like the ones that you've just said. I, I grew up in Belfast as well and um because Kieran Carson also did in the in the street beside me actually, um the soundscape of his book is the same as the soundscape of my well almost the same. They were different times. But those accents and the, the street playing in the street were I think was the same sound for us. And so those sounds came out from me following the instructions that John Cage wrote but it's resulted in a really rich soundscape that for me represents Belfast really and I think yeah I think everyone can can get their own experiences from those signs and it's that it's that phrase you know the music of what happens and it really is uh one of the richest it produces one of the richest responses because it's the music of what of bits of life of what happens i'm so glad they're connected because I, I, I watched the um the, there's an excerpt on your is it on your um, vimeo channel 
of the um the circus star factory yeah i think the whole piece the first performance of the whole piece is up there oh the whole thing oh great I only saw I mean, like it was an excerpt. It was only a, three minutes long. It's a song, pretty so. long watch. I think it's in sections. Yeah. Oh, pretty. But Kieran read at that performance and at subsequent ones. We did it three times at least, twice in Belfast and one in York. Um, it was really special to be doing it with the person who wrote the words too. I, I'm I'm really intrigued by the fact that Belfast has come up in this conversation I mean there's no way that it couldn't because you're a Belfast artist but um, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here since this since this is where we're at so when I was listening to that and then listening to yourself and Darren talking there and listening to you talk about Kieran Carson and Belfast uh, my dad was originally he was born in Belfast and his his parents moved the family up to Ballycastle um, sometime in the 19 uh so my dad was born in 1916. I think they moved up to Ballycastle around 1920 or something like that. And I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with the book Call My Brother Back by Michael McLaverty. So he describes a childhood uh, a childhood in Rathlin Island off the coast of Ballycastle there. Um, and then he describes a childhood in Belfast from around the time, probably just predating when my dad was born. And... I was reading that book <laughs> and the depiction of life in Rathlin. I was thinking about my dad being in Ballycastle just across the water. And then I was kind of thinking about Belfast and the mapping of that city that Kieran Carson did throughout his entire work. And it just kind of blows my mind <laughs> that we were listening to that piece and talking to you, an artist there living in the city now. And that's yeah, all I've got it, to say. It was just brilliant brilliant i'd like the the the, the, the sort of the threads of of memory and connecting and the imprints of memories on a on a place and um yeah it's endless um endless and kind of endless fodder for for feeling really and and writing can do that you know i i have such respect for the way writers can do that the way that you've got that from that book and also me from Kieran's writing um and then if you take really good writing like that and you manage through this one particular method but there are many others to to combine that meaningfully with sound and with sound that's of the place and and with Kieran's writing it was it was really uniquely of the place because he's obsessed with maps and you know when Cage conceived this Mm -hmm. You, you you make a list of the places and sounds in the text. Well, Kieran's writing has literally lists of, of streets in Belfast, some of which didn't exist anymore. So I was crawling around the public records office on the floor asking them for maps from, you know, 1958 and trying to find these streets that didn't exist anymore and mapping from the older map onto the new one and then going to the street on the new map and saying, well, I think it was about here, and pressing record on a, on a, on a Zoom, and so so it really brought me through a sense of the history of the the streets of Belfast as well, um, and I I I mean I love my city, um, everything about it. I've lived in different areas of it throughout my life, and I've also lived away, and I'm at a point now where I've come home and 
travel really this year with with the pandemic has been just non-existent compared to what I had been doing in the years previous. So it's a it's it's home now in a way that it hasn't been in previous years, and that it's hard to actually leave it on a plane now. And um, I feel really lucky that I had that experience with writing about the city, Kieran's writing about the city, and with that piece and with recordings and. Yeah, I, I think a sense of place for anyone is, is a source of real emotion. I think that's probably um, goes to the heart of myself and Darren's reason for embarking in this project is figuring out a sense of place when you're physically absent from the the space you grew up in. Is that, would that be right, Darren? 100%. Yeah, and I've worked on this with another writer called Emily Dudekis. Um She is from the US and lives in America. And we put together a piece together called Freak Floods, which was about being elsewhere whenever something was happening at home. So I was in Canada whenever a really close friend died in Belfast and also Brexit, the Brexit vote happened. And she was in Ireland whenever... A, a really big event in her personal life was happening in America um, and it also she was um, away from New Orleans whenever the hurricane happened there mm-hmm. so this piece is is about that and it's a, a, we call it a musical essay it's, it's her text and my music and it's about being out of place at really important times and Australia is, is so important as well um to people in Ireland too. I mean, I have family in Australia right now. One's my age, like I'm not talking uh, previous generations. There are currently people in Australia. I've never been, and it's um, it's a long way away. <laughs> yeah. Mm, seems a lot longer now with, uh, with everything that's going on, believe me. Yeah, I can imagine. And so interesting even now just to be having this conversation uh, across what is a big time difference and in a very strange situation to be talking about live music and the connection between musicians and artists I'm staring at a blank screen it, it used to have things on it but it's the computer's even gone to sleep and you know I'm having really interesting conversations on my own in a room which is really par for the course at the minute and has been for the last six months <laughs> so yeah there's a there's a lot to think about at the minute and I think the influence on art and artists is going to be deep so can I ask you then um, uh, originally when I reached out to you um, to, to chat to us um, uh, it was just around the time when um, RTE uh, screened the documentary um, and I, I wanted to ask you about um, Misha Foster and your involvement with that can you talk to me a bit about, like what's the background to that um, yeah Misha Foster is a movement that's relatively recent in terms of of it coming together and having a name but of course has a long history mm-hmm. and my involvement was really because I had been working and researching and thinking about the ideas of how gender affects participation in Irish traditional music for the last two years. Um, I started to write a piece of music in late 2017 on this topic at a time when 
I was really just doing it from a personal point of view as someone who had worked in traditional music and in sound engineering for traditional music and other genres um, for years and experienced sexism really in that industry and experienced how, how your gender can affect your participation and you're just you're trying to do whether that's trying to do a job or whether it's trying to take part even just in an, an informal way so these questions were really important to me and I started I really did think that a few of the instances that had happened to me there didn't seem to be any way that I could confront them change them or do anything about them without it being detrimental to the actual thing I was trying to do which was continue to play and work in music and so I thought well if I can't change it or if it's going to be detrimental to me to change it and I really did think that was the case and I'm still kind of sure that it is um then I might as well just make a piece of music about it and on days when I'm really furious about it I can include that in my concert performance and I can move on and I did that, um, but at the same time, the first performance of that piece was in January 2018, and at the same time, there were other people coming together to talk about this, and and at that point, Fair Play uh, was kind of made, and that was a big collective of people in Ireland and, and elsewhere, and the movement really grew throughout 2018, and we... Um, had lots of meetings. We had sessions. We had uh, what, what? raised awareness of of gender equality in traditional music. Really, right? Sorry, I, I talked over there. I didn't mean to. Sorry. No, no bother. Um, so that that was two thousand and eighteen, and then I think, um, Mr. Foster came about really during the pandemic. There over the last year, um, and it was about really confronting and and speaking out about um, sexual abuse, harassment and sexual violence in traditional music contexts. And I think um, it's it's a really powerful movement and it's one that is related to to fair play. I mean, I I know that that those questions are a very important part of the, the things that fair play were raising awareness of at the time. And how did you... Um, how did you personally experience um, sexual harassment in that field? If you're comfortable talking about it, and if you're not, I completely understand. I think maybe not that one specifically. Um, I mean, there are lots of stories about this now available through the Misha Foster channels, mm. and the women who spoke out about those stories on primetime as well. Mm. RTE covered this question. Um, so we know that it's happening. Um, we know that it's very hard for anyone to call it out or to do anything about it. And we know that it's been happening for a long time. I think that it is a very serious and damaging symptom of what is a wider problem um, in traditional music as to how gender affects how you, how you participate and how you're viewed and how you're judged and I think those things can they can come out in language um, in really subtle ways and we need to address the underlying character I guess of 
of how of the atmospheres in which traditional music is played to make sure that we provide an atmosphere where, where those more serious crimes really um, are not going to happen, are not allowed to happen and are, are not covered up. So one of one of the ways in which I, I mean, in 2018, when we started to talk about this, there was a very swift and clear backlash, uh, largely online. Um, Where does that come from? Well, I'm, I'm still trying to tease out where it comes from. But what I did know was that one of the things they were saying was, I don't see this. Men and women were saying, this has not been my experience. I don't know what you're talking about when you say gender inequality or, you know, unconscious bias or sexism in traditional music. This is not something I've experienced. And I understand that. Maybe it isn't something that everyone experiences. So I thought, well, I have to get these people some evidence. I have to make these people understand and see what it is that I see. And so I called for contributions from... um people via an online survey a questionnaire which just simply said tell your story and it was an open-ended question so it was tell your story when you've perceived gender to be an issue in a traditional music context and I received 123 responses to that questionnaire um, 121 two, two were later um, redacted so I, I've got 121 now of those stories and I've just completed a thematic analysis of them and I'm just finishing a paper at the minute um, about the results of that survey. And I really hope that it will enable people to better understand what the behaviours and contexts are in traditional music that give rise to an atmosphere that privileges the contribution of men and really means that, that women can suffer disproportionately in traditional music as they do in many areas of life. What, what are those behaviours, Una, that, that come through from analysing the experiences of other women? So there were two big themes that came out of the questionnaire. One were systems, causes and examples of this. So specific examples people gave where they felt that gender had been an issue in their treatment. And then the second theme was participants' experience of the effects of that. So that included things like silencing. Um, uh, so not being believed unless a man corroborated the story or um, being told, I know better, or just that your voice wasn't as important. Um, isolation, so women would... When they found environments to be difficult to engage in, they would take themselves out of that environment. So if you take the session, for example, as mm -hmm. as an area where traditional music happens, it's not always a comfortable place for women to be. Um, there are many reasons for that, but there's a power dynamic in the session as there is in many areas of life. And, and it's clear from these stories mm -hmm. that women would just stop going some of the time. <laughs> And if you have people who are removing themselves from these situations because they're not feeling welcome or supported or even safe, 
then you're losing voices from the tradition. And that was the name of the piece that I ended that I'd set out to write in the first place. And um, what haven't we heard? Because it's shaping the tradition. And I think we we need to be aware of that and we need to work out whether that's how we want it to be. Has it has the culture moved in any way past the initial reaction of of rejecting it? Like where where are you where are you feeling that? we're at at the moment i think it has i mean things are a lot better now that fair fair play means play means discussion and there's definitely been a discussion and that discussion is ongoing um it's expanded by the work of misha foster um we're still talking about it things are easier to talk about now um or at least there there is an acceptance that it, that it, it's a question and that there's a space to bring it up there are, um, I mean, the fact that you're asking me about it in this podcast is amazing. There have been has been media work on it as well, and so things have moved on in that way. In that there's there's more of a discussion, but we're still getting um, opposition to this. The, the third theme that came out of my research was responses to the questioner and to the research itself. I mean, some people had filled in a questioner with responses saying you're creating a problem by doing this research where there is none, you're just trying to get more gigs, um, stop ruining what's supposed to be fun, uh, you should practice more if you want to be better, um, it's just lazy, untalented <laughs> women complaining. I mean, these were actual responses that I was getting to asking a question. And that is worrying. Um, responses like that also came out as a result of the primetime program on Misha Foster airing as well. Um, it worries me that the response of people to these questions not being one of, hmm, what can we do about this or can we find out more about this? When your response isn't that, when your response is, I'm afraid of the tradition is going to be taken into disrepute here or you're tainting the image of the tradition, th- there is a sense that by asking these questions and by talking about this that you're upsetting something you're mm-hmm. you're you're ruining something and that idea of the tradition the way that it's sold the way that it's presented as something pure and sacred it's worrying that when when people yeah when people raise an issue the response was not always oh there's an issue can we talk about it the response was hang on a minute that's not related to our sacred tradition. And I think that's really problematic, especially since a tradition by its very nature is something that evolves and is of the people. The tradition was being held up as something that was more important than the people involved in it. That's really what we were being told, which was, you might have an issue here, but the tradition's more important, so best to keep quiet. And I mean, that that is the type of that is the type of answer we've heard in in other arenas and it's just not it's not useful and it's it's not going to keep people safe or help or help everyone's enjoyment of it it gives you just some indication too like i'm presuming that a lot of these people like it's not anonymous um rejections like these are if if they're using facebook or 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 the social ways of of voicing these opinions like it means those 
those opinions are so top level and so ingrained and and they're the blind spots so big that it's they don't even see that expressing these yeah. views is so off in the first yes, place like it just gives you such an but indication also, i can see how that might be the case and that's why one of the things i want to do is to publish this article and also i hope eventually to publish the stories that I received in some form, I, I got consent from the people who submitted them and they're all anonymous. And that was the way the survey was designed from the start, because I believe that it's not one story that convinces people. Every one of these stories can be dismissed as just someone's bad behavior or something was misunderstood, or this was a problem relating to the person and their view of the world. You can dismiss any of these stories if you take them separately. My my point is that if we read all 121, we begin to get a sense of how how things are interrelated, how how nuanced this world is, and how how difficult it is to pinpoint what it is exactly is the problem. And so I want to publish all of them, and I want people to read all of them. But again, the issue here is that you you need to make sure people are safe, that people aren't disadvantaged further by this work being shared. And as I thought, I, I put I, I you know put the, the study through ethics considerations at, at Cambridge University, and I I asked for it to be anonymous, and I received consent, and still. I'm a bit nervous about publishing them because of the potential effect on people because of some of the responses that I've had. So I'm looking into ways to do that eventually um, and I hope to be able to do it simply because I think it's the only way people might actually understand what, what, how, how big and how wide and how nuanced and how how subtle the problems are the, the most common tag so I've, I've gone through all of the res- responses and they're all coded with short phrases that describe the content of the response and the most common code was extra emotional labor as a result of gender and that can be something you know as subtle as you arrive to a pipes class as a 13 year old and you're told the flute class is next door you know, the male teacher looks up and the eight male students look up and the girl walks in and she's 13 and they say, oh, the flute class is next door. She's carrying a pipes class, a pipes case. You know, she's arrived to the class. That might seem like a really subtle thing, but for that 13-year-old to be, for it to be assumed that you're not there to learn pipes, that has an emotional response. And that contributes to how you view yourself and how you view the instrument. Now, like we were saying about the harp, which is kind of the opposite, mostly women play the harp. And, the, and of course, the number of women playing the pipes has moved on so much in the past few years. But it's not gone away. It's still a problem. And that tiny little emotional prick for that person at the time, if that happens repeatedly and over time, that was another one of the very common tags was that this is an ongoing problem and it has happened repeatedly and over time. So it's not simple. It's not as simple as me. Because every time I talk about this, people say, give me an example. 
And mm-hmm. I'm res- it's really hard for me to talk about this in a really succinct, clean way because it's not a succinct, clean story. And I can't give you one example where you go, ah, okay, that makes me understand. It's only in the constant listening, the constant discussion, and in trying to understand what our language and assumptions are around gender and Irish traditional music. Have you, when you're talking about the safety of other people, I mean, have you felt your own safety at risk? Yeah. I mean, I would say any woman in the world has felt their own safety at, potentially at risk at points in their life. Um, and we know now from the work of Misha Foster that people have been unsafe in traditional music contexts. But those, you know, those are the stories at the extreme end of the spectrum. Very few people are going to argue with an incident of sexual violence. Many people will argue about unconscious bias and about comments and about the subtleties of how sessions work and about the assumptions people make about what instrument you play or how you play that instrument. Many people will argue that with me about how that doesn't matter and how you should be able to ignore it and how, you know, it's only one person's opinion. And those are the the points and that is the atmosphere in which we are working and that's the atmosphere which results in the unbalanced numbers of women participating at all levels. It's not just a professional problem and it's not a historical problem. And that is the atmosphere that enables the more serious things to happen. Mm-hmm. So with the, the, just so I understand too, when you mentioned the, what haven't we heard, is that a piece that, that's, because you, you recorded that already or is that something that you're, another piece that you're working on with, along with the 121? So that piece is part of a suite of music called Eineracht. Um, it's so, uh, it's part of my work around looking at solo traditional musicians and electronics. So over the past years I've been working on so as a solo harp player with electronics and I've been trying to think about the soloist in traditional music and what that means when you're playing with computer and so I started to write other pieces for other instruments with electronics and the first six of those were part of a suite called Eineracht which um, I presented at the National Concert Hall last February just a few weeks before lockdown I'd been working on the suite for many years and I've been working up to the concert for months and I just feel for all of the artists who were working on a project and then just had it pulled. I was so lucky that my concert was two weeks before lockdown. I can't imagine how I would have felt if I'd put in all that work with all that build up mm-hmm. and you know the potential to put the yeah. piece out and then it just go. It just felt really like I'd been lucky. So that, that piece happened in February. Um, Interact has so I'm hoping that there will be 12 pieces eventually and the first six are for solo concertina harp voice pipes piano and fiddle and uh, the fiddle was with Pauline well, the fiddle was with Paddy Glacken uh, the piano was Salogni Kanawan concertina was Jack Talty I did the harp and electronics 
uh, pipes, Tiernan no Dinkin, and the voice was Pauline Scanlon, and the piece for voice and electronics was What Haven't We Heard. Nice. Well, we'll link to everything that we can link to in the show notes, and um, I just wanted to say, you know, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Completely. Um, absolutely loved it. Thank you so much. No, thank you. It's it's really lovely to uh, get to talk about artwork anytime with people who are interested. Um, so yeah, it's been lovely. Uh, so one last piece before you go, in a um, how about we listen to the Chinwag? Yeah, this is a piece that was made after a conversation with three women in Donegal. Well, they were having the conversation. I was kind of a lucky listener. But uh, I wanted to represent the music of their voices, their accents, the, the things they were talking about, which were, you know, almost historical to me. And and the the, the, the turn of phrase was all really musical. And so uh, I tried to make this piece out of a recording of that conversation. And the electronics are brought forward by the playing of the harp. So they won't happen unless the harp's being played. And also by the movement of of the hands on the harp so I think we're going to hear this in audio but it's it's a piece that I prefer to have experienced live and or at the very least to have experienced while you're you're watching the harp being played so if you can see the video for this one which is online that's even better but I think we're just going to have the audio now Thank you. 
he was sent out to Egypt. He was in the, the army. Thanks so much. No worries. And I just want to say as well, like, um, thanks for sharing your responses to the pieces because as an artist, it's a really lovely thing to be given is anyone's response to the work because one of the things about live performance that you don't even get, you don't always get people's reaction. And you, you don't, more than that, you don't always get their honest reaction. And... Can I give you one more? Because th- th- that last experience of speaking with you and then watching you live while you're on, you're, so you're in my cans, just sitting, listening, watching the same, listening to the same piece was a beautiful, I know the art ends up in the mind of the the viewer, I suppose, but that was a very profound individual experience, that last piece, watching you from an old recording while on the phone with you. <laughs> it was very meta, it was very enjoyable. So thank you for that. Yeah, and and those are the those are the points of connection that we have now. Mm. You know, it's really it really is making us rethink what we don't have, but also the the different ways that you what what we do you have now, or what we've been forced to accept. And uh, so I so when you perform live, you don't get to ask the audience very often. So in some performances, I like to say to people. You know, can we have a Q&A afterwards? Because it gives me somewhere to put my energy after a performance. Like, what did you think? Did you like it? What did you get from that? Because very often they get things from it that I didn't mean or that I, or that informs the next time I play it. And those are really lovely insights that 
we don't often get usually you just send it out into the world and that's it as the performer you just have to sit with your questions <laughs> and they're not they're not answered and that can be even worse in the time of streaming like now during the pandemic I've done a couple of performances or interviews and you're doing them to your computer it's going to happen with this one too you have a really energetic and meaningful conversation with people and sometimes performance to people and then you shut down you say right bye and you hang up and it's just you in your room and the walls are suddenly it's suddenly a different space everyone's left were they ever there and uh it happened as well with a recorded performance that i did towards the start of lockdown i made the piece and then the piece was being released online and i watched it with some family members and it was so dissatisfying to be watching something that you'd put some heart and soul into without seeing all the other people who were watching it, not knowing if they were even listening, not knowing who was there, not knowing what they thought. And I suppose that may not matter. Maybe it shouldn't matter to me, but I I, I am still working out my relationship with this new situation, new in some ways, of not knowing the response. <laughs> mm. I think the the only thing I'd add to onto that would be with this medium and what myself and Tom are building and and what's happened during COVID is for some reason people have kind of gravitated to listening to conversations like what we've had as a a new way of spending time with mm -hmm. people. So what I we get messages like particular like in the last few weeks that we become the the few hours that people are spending with someone and they go it's weird like i go out and i do my thing and i listen to you like you guys have a chat with whoever you're having a chat with and i feel like i've caught up with some mates and and that's a it's a very strange place to occupy yeah which is great obviously but as you say like you don't really like were they ever there <laughs> that, that's that's it great well um i guess nine eight and I'm going to go have some lunch. Right. Thank you so much for all your time. <laughs> Great. And I'm sure we'll be in touch again. And uh, yeah, thanks. So there you are. That's um, Una Monaghan. And just buzzing after that. Uh, uh, it's true a problem. Story. A true story. Like, I, um, I, 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 yeah, it, it was just, it was real, man. It's a problem finishing these interviews late at night, particularly on a school night when it's that good. It felt like I had witnessed a, a it felt akin to when you see a really great piece of, of art and then it just takes a while to, to unpack it and kind of, because you don't really understand the significance of different things. Like sitting with three people with headphones on around a speaker set with a microphone pointing at a speaker while playing music into the microphone so everyone can listen to it and then talking about it is at its face that kind of sounds straightforward but then it's not it's very profound considering what's happening within the world right now and that that statement that um una said towards the very end where were they really there like i sat back down on my chair in here after that all finished and felt as much as I was tingling, that was resonating, and it was hard. It was like, well, were we really there? Did did that really happen? Because we weren't in the same room. Is the facsimile good enough? 
I think so. I, th- I, I, I do actually think so. I think it was, it's not the old fashioned type of um, connection that you, that we crave, but it definitely had a sweet spot and delivered something for me anyway, personally. And hopefully that comes across listening to it then once removed again, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, there are so many things that I, I'm drawn back to in the way that Una spoke about her work. And when she spoke about that very early experience of a PA, where she mm-hmm. realized she, her mind was sort of blown by the fact that you could make this sound and have it sort of projected out into the world. And I, I had that image in my head as we were listening to those things of the sound coming out of your speaker into the microphone, into your machine, down the line to me, down the line to her, and then our reactions kind of going back again. So it's mm. just these um, these conduits of emotion. So, yeah. Cracking. Thank you so much, Una, for that. Thank you, Una Mullen. Yeah. Really and thank you, thank you to so our patrons for, again, making this happen. You're like, you are the saints that make the podcast every week possible for myself and Don to to arrange, to produce, to, to house, to, you know, all of the things that need to happen to make this happen. If it wasn't for the patrons and your contribution each week, we just wouldn't be able to do that. So a heartfelt thank you as always. And that's not just something that we say each week. I know we say the same words, but when I say it, we mean it. Thank you for making this possible. We love making it. And hopefully everyone that listens to it enjoys it. If you enjoy it to a level where you think you would like to contribute and keep it uh, going and push it that bit further, please head over to patreon.com forward slash Balarney Pilgrims. If you can't, look, this is a bloody rough time of year, rough time of life for so many people. If you can't, that's okay. But we would love if you could give us a subscribe or a review or a thumbs up or even just share us on Facebook onto someone that you think might like us. Even better yet, next time you see someone and you get to have a conversation, tell them about it. Write it on your mask. <laughs> BlarneyPilgrims.com you. I think that's you angling towards merch again, Don. It is indeed. Yeah, that's me. I'm all about <laughs> we the missed, merch. We so. missed it. Wall Street Bets could have been on Blarney Pilgrims. <laughs> Face all right. Mask. Let's let's leave it at that, huh? Thanks again. We'll see you next week. See ya. Hi, my name is Jetro. Please become a good subscriber to the podcast. Thank you.